I'd say there's something weird going on, yeah. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome back to the Uncover Up. Um, I'm back. I, I hear that I've been um, in high demand in my absence, so um, it's good to be back with Nathan Radke. Hello. And Lee Kunla. Hiya. So today we were talk. We're going to talk about a very um, in the news and very exciting and mysterious topic. We're going to be talking about the UAPs, otherwise known as UFO phenomenon, that is. Um, that is in the news and to be in the news even more so in the in the recent future. Yeah, yeah this is yeah, sort of unusual I- for us because normally, I mean, it's no secret that around the uncover up offices, Lee is referred to as Captain Cautious because Lee <laughs> never wants to have a hot take. Lee specializes in the ice cold take, which means that normally if we're going to be talking about something Lee wants at least, you know, 30 years to have passed so that we can have gathered context and information and we can have a really solid grasp of what's going on. And so I was shocked when Lee suggested that we talk about something not only that didn't happen 30 years ago, but hasn't even happened yet. Because uh, what we're doing is we're going to be discussing these these UAP settings. And the reason we're doing it now is because there is a uh, a massive Pentagon report that's going to be released, but it hasn't been released yet. So Lee, I was genuinely surprised when you said you wanted to get on this. Well, I certainly didn't think that I wanted to do a podcast about it either, but we were called on to appear on local TV, um, a local news station, to talk about what we thought was go- was going on with these UAPs or just generally UFOs. So what what's going on with these UFO sightings that that the military has been publishing? And I called Nathan because I I always have tech issues, so I didn't want to discover that I had some awful tech issue just as we went live on uh, the news. So I called Nathan to just check if my audio and visual were working. And so we ran through a couple of points. And it turns out we had a one hour long conversation that ended only because we had to go on TV. I I think we both would have liked to have kept talking about it. And I found it really interesting in a way of sort of testing some of the critical thinking tools that we try and bring to these questions because (laughs) we're recording this before the document drop. And we're going to sort of put our uh, reputations in as much as we have them on the line to try and, uh, what's the word, to get ahead of the news a little bit this time and predict what we think is actually going on. Although we haven't seen any more of the documents than are currently available, so we're going on deliberately the news reports and um, interviews from the pilots and things like that. And we're going to try and use... Yeah, so, sort of what we know about the UFO phenomenon to kind of predict what's happening. But I, it, it's absolutely true. Nathan is right. I'm quite nervous about what we're about to do. The pandemic has really changed, Eli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten to be. Like a soothsayer. You're going to be doing psychic readings by the end of this. <laughs> so yeah. let's start. Let's start carefully. Uh, even though we're forging ahead, we're going to start carefully. And let's do some background. Why are we talking about this right now? 
Because in December of 2020, as part of a massive COVID relief bill passed in the U.S. Congress, uh, weirdly, a section was inserted into that massive bill stating that, quote, detailed analysis of unidentified aerial phenomena, data and intelligence, end quote, collected by U.S. intelligence agencies needed to be put together into a report and sent to Congress by June. And the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, they asked for an unclassified analysis, which means in theory that we'll all get to see it. Although, of course, like almost everything we see, it will certainly be mostly redacted. So we're about to get a massive drop of uh, UFO files in a, in a giant UFO report, which has caused a lot of buzz, has caused a lot of interest. Lee mentioned that we were on TV last week. We've been on the radio probably 12 times in the last month and a half. This is like we are in the middle of a UFO flap, which is very gratifying and exciting. And I just want to dwell really briefly on how cool it is that somebody snuck in to a COVID relief bill, something that has absolutely nothing to do with COVID whatsoever. And, you know, I mean, I'm just guessing here that there was a lot of urgency to pass that bill. And people maybe didn't read through the 500 pages as carefully as they might have. And so this one paragraph, which basically says, give us all the dirt you got on UFOs, sort of slipped by unnoticed. But I think it's also really telling when we come to that refrain that we have heard so often about the government and how there are people within the government who want to know this stuff as much as civilians do, and they're not necessarily. I, I think this speaks a bit to the fact that there isn't just one giant cover-up by this thing we call the government. Yeah, for sure. And of course, as regular listeners know, this is by no means the first UFO report that the American government has produced. Uh, back in 1948, at the very sort of dawn of the UFO phenomenon, we had Project Sign turned into Project Grudge in 49. Of course, the infamous Project Blue Book from 52 to 69. And recently, uh, the AATIP, which started in uh, 2007 and ran for a couple of years. And that's the one that we're really concentrating on here. It's the most recent. And Luis Elizondo, who ran AATIP, uh, he's been doing a lot of media appearances in his goatee, talking about how, in his opinion, there is something strange in the sky. And he has sort of suggested that he thinks that it may be extraterrestrial. And that's that's kind of an extraordinary thing to hear from somebody who was running this Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. Yeah, he isn't just like some nobody. Uh, he, he was heading up the task force. He was a former counterintelligence special agent. He, was, he worked in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Yeah, that's what gives him some credibility here. And also the footage that he's showing is taken by mostly pilots, right? Fighter pilots in the military. So this isn't sort of like people on, I don't know, with their cell phones who happen to work for the military who are like, you know, sending in pictures of stuff. This is this is considered to be a, you know, very good type of report. Yeah, but, probably but the that's best why people are taking we've it. seen of UFOs. I was going to say this. This is an important distinction, though we often try to make when we're talking about um, UFO sightings and and well sightings in general. Um, is that we can't always assume that a sighting of something like an unidentified flying object is 
doesn't necessarily mean that it is an extraterrestrial life form, right? But it's interesting to consider the possibility. But I feel like that's a distinction we've always tried to make in the past where we're like, just because we doesn't we don't know what it is, doesn't mean that it is like some sort of alien life form, you know? Yeah, we always have to remember that the U in UFO stands for unidentified. And so to say something is a UFO means hey, there's a thing and we don't know what it is. And I think this time around in the UFO flap that we're in at the moment, it that distinction has been made a couple of times. And I think that's an interesting point you raise, Elena, is that even the people who seem to be on the side of, look, this is pretty unique and are sort of leading an audience towards maybe they're extraterrestrials, are not coming out so much and saying, look, this is guaranteed proof of UFOs. It's just these images apparently record something that is unexplainable. And in, by virtue of it being unexplainable, you know, it's like, well what, well, what could it possibly be? But I think that's a really important point uh, that Elena brought up. To give ourselves a taste of this, I thought what we might do is do kind of a reasonably deep dive into one UFO encounter in particular, because there have been a number lately, but there's been one that we have footage of, we also have have eyewitness testimony from pilots. Is is this the one with Lieutenant Dietrich? It is. All right. So tell us. Back in November 2004. So 2004, the USS Nimitz Strike Group was conducting drills about 100 miles off the coast of California and the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the USS Nimitz is, is a massive, basically it's a floating city of an aircraft carrier. Uh, and it's surrounded by escort ships and missile carriers and things like that. And one of the escort ships, the missile cruiser USS Princeton, had been picking up strange objects on their radar for a few days. Over 100 of them, uh, according to the Princeton senior radar operator, Kevin Day. Now, that's strange enough that they assumed that their radar was probably malfunctioning. However, however, they took it apart. They dismantled it. They They used backups. They, they double-checked it, and it did appear that these radar returns that they were getting represented something real that was in the sky. And it was high up in the sky. It was 80,000 feet. But then some of these started dropping down into airspace that was shared by commercial military jets, uh, lower than 30,000 feet. And so at that point, it became more of a, an important situation to deal with. And on November 14, 2004, there was an experienced fighter pilot named Commander David Fravor, and there was, uh, and at the time, a rookie pilot named Alex Dietrich, who later would become a high-ranking member of the U.S. Navy. They were each flying their two-seater FA-18F Super Hornets on a training mission. But at 2 p.m. on November 14th, they received instructions from the Princeton to stop the training maneuvers and proceed to new coordinates for what the operations officer called a real-world task. And ominously, he also asked them if they were armed. Now, neither of them were because this was a training exercise. But that's sort of a, an alarming thing to hear as a pilot, to say, hey, we need you to go to this location, and could you tell us if you are carrying any weaponry on you? So the two pilots are vectored to a new position to intercept one of these strange radar objects. Both Fravor and Dietrich noticed visually a disturbance below them in the ocean. It was an area of white water about the size of a jet airliner. Above that water disturbance was a flying object. According to Fravor, the object was about 40 feet long and shaped like a tic-tac. And Fravor said of the UFO, It's white. It has no wings. It has no rotors. I go, holy shit, what is that? 
the movements were sudden and erratic, like a ping pong ball bouncing around. Or uh, later, uh, Lieutenant Commander Dietrich would say something like, it's like if you drop your cell phone on a table and it just starts skittering everywhere. Uh, she also said later that as she watched it move around, she realized with some growing concern that her plane would be incapable of matching it in any kind of dogfight because it was so maneuverable. It was capable of doing things that her super hornet wouldn't even come close to. So Dietrich stays up in the air to provide cover and Fravor circles down to intercept the UFO. And as he starts to circle down, it starts to circle up towards his plane. Then, as it gets close to his plane, it suddenly turns and accelerates away at speeds that his FAA-18 couldn't come close to matching. Another Super Hornet uh, was flown by Lieutenant uh, Commander Chad Underwood, great fighter pilot name, and he had been scrambled to assist the first two planes, and he was actually able to track down the UFO using an infrared camera, but then after he was able to get it on tape for a bit, the Tic Tac sped off. Now, this footage taken by Underwood has become known as the FLIR video, F-L-I-R, which stands for forward-looking infrared. And uh, at this point, we have all seen that footage. And out of context, the video doesn't look that impressive. It's, it's grainy. It's a blip. But when it's placed within the context of basically four sets of eyeballs that saw this thing, I mean, it was tracked on radar, it was tracked on infrared, and it was seen visually. It would be very difficult for something to fool all three sets of those sensory apparatuses, apparati. What did you think, uh, Lee, you've seen this this footage. What do you think of it? I was underwhelmed when I saw the footage. I, I, was, I was actually really frustrated because I felt that going into it, there was a lot of discussion about this is the thing, you know, this is, this is the evidence we have been waiting for. And as Nathan said, if you... Uh, take out the context of people talking and telling you what it is that you are seeing. Basically, it's a fuzzy black blob on a gray background. I mean, you cannot tell where the horizon is. You cannot tell anything from the footage itself. So I think there is a really interesting mystery here. And I think the um, video footage is one element of it. But as Nathan said, without all of the commentary, which is saying things like, oh my goodness, it's, you know, dropping 80,000 feet in a second and, oh, it's coming up towards me or whatever, whatever. Without that, it, it does not feel like a very convincing piece of footage. It's certainly not, you know, a high definition image of something that is clearly unexplainable. I sent you guys, and maybe we can post this, I'm not sure, this is beyond my Ken posting things to our Instagram account or whatever, but I sent Elena and Nathan a picture when I dropped my daughter off for piano lessons, and there was a UFO in the sky. And I sent it to them, I said, what do you guys think this is? And the video looked a lot like that. It was just sort of a blurry image of something somewhere. Um, well, what, but what that video does do is it provides recorded evidence of the testimony from the pilots. And so that's what makes this interesting. If you just had the testimony by itself of what the pilots saw, that would be one thing. If you just had that sort of blurry video of the of the Tic Tac, that would be another thing. Each seems to corroborate the other. Uh, Elena, have you seen the interviews with these pilots? Yeah. Yeah. The interviews is that's maybe the most compelling part is to see like their genuine kind of 
I don't know what the word is. Um, they're genuine. I don't even genuineness. Well, they're just they're genuine so, like, genuineness. You can see it behind their eyes that they're truly like they don't really know what they saw. It was like this truly inexplicable experience for them, you know, unique to their experience. Something one of the the pilots was describing how how her brain was trying to process like you know, in the way that our brains try and categorize, you see this thing, you're like, oh, okay, it's not a helicopter. It's not a plane that I know of. Like she's kind of going through the role of things that she knows and categories she knows and being like, this doesn't fit any of those. Like, I don't actually know how to even process what I'm seeing because it's so unlike anything I've ever experienced before. So that is really compelling. And then pairing that, um, like Nathan was saying with other, um, with other images, like you, like you said, Nathan, early, not a lot of them are very, are high quality at all, but just seeing things like the way they move, that is unlike anything we've seen, you know, no exhaust, no wings, the way they can just suddenly just bolt off in, in a direction and disappear. Uh, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of inexplicable things going on and, and the testimony really, I feel like it really um, comes through in that. And the thing is, because we have, we have four sets of eyes in two different planes. One of the most common uh, reasons that pilots will report a UFO is glare reflecting off of their canopy. But if you have two different planes in two different locations, that is not going to happen. And they were able to see it for such a long time, and they were actually maneuvering against it and with it. It does appear that these pilots were seeing something, and it was something that they didn't recognize. And this is something I've said before. Eyewitness testimony is a problem. Obviously, our our senses are faulty. Our memories are faulty. However, I trust the impressions that fighter pilots give of things in the sky because they are far more trained than the rest of us at identifying things that should be up there. I mean, their their lives depend on their ability to understand what they're in the sky with. And this is why one of the reasons why Lieutenant Commander Dietrich said it was so unnerving, because she didn't know what it was. But when she observed it, she thought, not only do I not know what this is, but I don't think I could keep up with it, and I don't think I could maneuver anywhere near this this well. I want to throw out a concern I have at this point, and I'm not suggesting that the pilots aren't trustworthy people, nor am I suggesting that they didn't actually see something mysterious. I I don't know how to make sense exactly of what they saw. But one of the things I want to challenge is this notion of a trained observer. Because I, I would go so far as to say that there is no such thing. And, and this isn't me. I came across it after doing a bunch of reading uh, last summer, actually, on the psychology of perception. Books like The Invisible Gorilla and uh, other books like this, which really talk about the incredible amount of errors that people are subjected to, be they police officers, be they air traffic controllers. People are often saddled with, well, often, people are saddled with the same kind of psychological baggage as everyone else in terms of our limits of perception, recognition, cognition. And I think that, oh, this is a very long-winded example that I'm about to uh, get into. So maybe I should start by giving the conclusion, which is that usually we get stuck somewhere on one of these points. Like, they clearly saw something, 
And they have video footage of it. So that's sort of a kind of an immovable thing. And then we add to that that uh, they are, you know, trained observers who we can trust. And we sort of build an argument like this. But not all pieces of that argument are equally strong. And I feel like one of the one of the areas where we can push back a little bit is this notion of a trained observer. A lot of, and I don't, you know, this is a totally different conversation, but a lot of people have gone to prison because of the assumption that the police officers, you know, knows what they're talking about. And even when there are situations where there was no malice on behalf of the police officer, no obvious racism or uh, sexism or any of these kinds of things that might lead them to give false testimony, they get things wrong. And it's down to things like, this goes, this is an experiment that sort of along these lines tries to prove this point. Subjects in this experiment are shown a video of one car hitting another car. And right after, uh, and sometimes as much as a week after, they're asked to recount core instances of what happened. And they get stuff wrong, like really wrong, like who crashed into who, or you know, whether there were witnesses or not, or whether the person was a man or a woman, like kind of core stuff that you think you can rely on people to know if they've just witnessed a car crash, which car hit which, you know, you'd think this is, this is a no brainer. Turns out it's not always the case that people can really be relied upon. So I would just want to insert here this caveat that there is a lot of psychological experimentation to suggest that eyewitness testimony is really the worst kind of testimony, even when the people are highly qualified, highly trained, and have a certain kind of social status. For sure. But there are aspects of this story in which that that doesn't necessarily apply. The fact that it starts with a radar sighting, that radar sighting is then confirmed to a degree by the by the actual visual sighting, and then confirmed again by the infrared camera, those are three completely different systems that are all basically saying the same thing. There is something in the sky here. Even though, of course, I agree with everything Lee said about eyewitness testimony. Yeah, same. I agree with that that commentary. But also in this case, these pilots aren't claiming that they were alien life forms. They're just claiming that they saw something that they didn't know what it was, that it moved differently than they had seen before. And like Nathan said, there's these other pieces of, um, well, evidence I'll use loosely, but it is really um, images and things like that, that, that sort of support that sighting. But it's true. I think it, it, I'd worry more about that if we were, um, if they were making some sort of claim about it, that was problematic or a little more sort of questionable. So this is actually, I'm, I'm loving this because this is actually why I wanted to have this podcast now, because this is what I discovered when I called Nathan for a sound check, is that we don't actually totally agree on all of these issues. And so we're politely sort of, you know, dancing around it. I mean, we do also agree on a lot of the core issues as well. The one thing I just want to add here, though, is that not all... now. We're talking about one sighting in particular, but there's a bunch of sightings. That's why we're interested in this, because there's a lot of sightings, apparently. And not all of them do contain an eyewitness account, in the sense that the pilots only see it on their screens. Like, they don't actually look out the cockpit window and see something out there. 
right? They see something on their screen. So now my excitement is somewhat tempered because they're like, oh my goodness, what is this thing? And it's like, I don't know, it's like some blob on a camera. It's moving erratically, but I don't know. It just, it. I'm not saying I know what it is. I'm not saying I, I you know, I'm not dismissing them. But I, I just find I find it more power their testimony more powerful when you think that they're actually seeing this thing for real. Or well, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to go just down this road of uh eyewitnessing. And also in the example that Lee gives, which is I think crucial for people to understand because uh we we definitely assign eyewitness testimony too much value in a in a court case or something like that. Uh, somebody comes in and says, I saw this person do that. It's it, it feels open and shut. But there are so many things that can go wrong with our senses. There are so many things that can go wrong with our memory. However, in the example that Lee gives of the experiment where people watch a car collision and then are asked to remember it afterwards, if you ask them, were they two elephants that ran into each other? Everyone would say no. If you said, you know, did uh, a dinosaur fly out of the sky and grab somebody? Everyone would probably say no. Even though there might be some of the specifics that people are going to get wrong, even some surprising specifics that people get wrong, what would still happen is if you asked all of the people who took part in that experiment, what did you see? They would say, I saw cars crash into each other. And so we don't want to get to the point where we say that we're basically delusional and incapable of of understanding anything that we see around us. We We have to temper that and realize that obviously our senses and memory are flawed. But there's still also the things that we depend on basically for all of the information we get about the world. <laughs> you might just need to cut me out here because I'm like a dog with a bone. I can't let go. Um, you're right. You've got two people watching the car crash video. Nobody's going to say, I think it was actually two elephants. But that's because um, there's a lot of context in that video. Now, when we decontextualize it and we say, look, there's a thing, maybe, Maybe there isn't even a thing, but there might be a thing here. I think in that situation, our own psychology starts to play a lot more of a role. We start being confronted with a Rorschach test, you know, these ink blots where you're like, what do you see here? What do you see here? So when the image is decontextualized and highly ambiguous, I think the eyewitness reports become even less um, useful evidence. Oh, but the eyewitness reports here aren't saying what it was. They were saying they didn't know. Yeah, okay, that's true. That's true. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Again, I'm not trying to dismiss that they saw something. I'm not saying I know what it is and they're gullible. Uh, but we started because we started down this road because we're like, you know what? Those videos themselves are not that impressive. What you need to do is really contextualize it with the eyewitness accounts. But if the eyewitness accounts themselves can't be given that much credence simply because they are quote-unquote trained observers who work for the Air Force and, you know, um, are clearly not intoxicated and whatever. Uh, I feel like the videos also become less compelling because we're really basing it on a lot of mm, a lot of personal, what, they're trying to make sense of something very ambiguous, Right? But you're right. I mean, they didn't say what it is. I think there is a mystery here. I just, I'm suspicious or I am hesitant to put too much stock, even though they are fighter pilots. Which is why we call him Captain Cautious around the office. And here's the other thing I would say is that the flaws of uh, the eyewitness testimony 
There are flaws with eyewitness testimony, of course. There are also flaws with infrared imaging. There are also flaws with radar. But they all have different flaws. They're not all sharing the same flaw. And so if we have a situation like this where we get data from eyeballs, from radar, and from infrared, it's almost like they have different strengths and different weaknesses. And you have to take them all together because we have examples of all three from this incident. Yeah, I look, I'm going to give it to you at this point because we got to move on, right? Um, how much, let me, let me put it in the form of a question. How much do we actually have? Because there is on the one hand what the military says they have, and then there is what is released to us. And what we ha- what I have seen so far are the uh, pilots recounting what happened themselves. And I've seen some of the video footage that the military has released. I have not seen the radar specs, even if I could interpret it, which I'm pretty sure I cannot, or the infrared or whatever other kind. So what actually has been released so far? And what does this stuff say? Because again, this is a this was an off-air discussion that we were having um, before we started today was to what extent can we take this stuff seriously if we're not given access to all the data? Now, I know that that might be in the document drop, although I suspect most of it's going to be, you know, redacted. But if if somebody says, listen, I'm very credible, you have to believe that I've got really good radar images, but I'm just going to give you a fuzzy blob and some excited pilots. Yeah, I, I, I'm still... I'm still captain cautious. So, so Nathan or Elena or both, what do we, what do we got? What, do, what, what can we really, what kind of evidence can we really, you know, what I would want to say pin our hat I can, on. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I'll thing. tell you what I'm comfortable with saying at this point, based on the evidence that we've presented with, I'm comfortable in saying this and I'll see if you two agree with me. Something sort of weird is going on. That's what I'm comfortable saying. I'm comfortable with that. I've also seen other pilots saying, you know, that it was a very common occurrence to see these things in the sky for them over the seas and stuff. So I'd say there's something weird going on. Yeah, I, I, I totally think so. Not, I would go even further. I think that his, the historical record suggests that there is something going on. I mean, in the past, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, in the past when when this kind of stuff has emerged, people really did see real things uh, that were out there and unexplainable at the time. Now, whatever, that's not all of the UFO sightings. That's like 3 to 5% of the UFO sightings that we consider to be really good cases. And in those cases, I, I'm, I totally think that they saw something. And I think based on what we know, it is it is pretty unexplainable. Okay, so at this point, then, why don't we look at some possible explanations and then really hash them out? So why don't we start with this one? Here's a hypothesis. Is what those pilots saw some kind of top secret tech from Russia or China? And and like Lee says, all of this stuff has sort of happened before. Back at the beginning of the UFO craze in the late 1940s, it's interesting when you read the CIA files and the Air Force files, there's almost no discussion about, hey, do you think these are aliens? And there's a tremendous amount of discussion on the possibility that these flying saucers were actually Soviet. Because as we've talked about before, after World War II, uh, the Americans had something called Operation Paperclip, where they basically went to Germany, they grabbed a bunch of Nazi scientists and brought them back to the United States to work on things like the space program. Well, the Soviets did something similar. 
And there was some pretty weird stuff being worked on in Germany during World War II. Uh, the Horton brothers, for example, were building flying wings, which looked, if you think about a World War II airplane, these things look like spaceships. They look like boomerangs. And so there was a lot of worry amongst the American intelligence that maybe the Soviets got their hands on some of these German scientists and they were building some pretty weird aircraft. Uh, there's a Sherlock Holmes story about the dog that didn't bark. The fact that a dog didn't bark was suspicious. Well, there was kind of a dog that didn't bark because the Soviet press said almost nothing about UFOs in the 1940s and 1950s, which also made American intelligence extremely suspicious. You know, it's interesting, the very first Flying Saucer movie, because I don't think you can separate the UFO phenomenon from pop culture. The two of them have sort of merged together into one thing. The very first Flying Saucer movie was titled unoriginally The Flying Saucer, and it had no aliens in it. Instead, it's a spy thriller. It wasn't that thrilling. It's actually painfully boring and plotting. But it's about an American agent trying to prevent the Soviets from buying the plans to a flying saucer that was made by a human being. This is something that I think has been forgotten, is that in the early days of this phenomenon, aliens hadn't even shown up in these flying saucers yet. It was Russians. So I'm really curious about Elena's take on the hypothesis that it's uh, foreign tech. This is my second favorite explanation. I have some reasons what which make me think that it's it's not the best explanation. One of my concerns is why would China or Russia or anybody else for that matter be testing their tech in the United States? I feel like this if if this is chinese or soviet or sorry not soviet uh if it's chinese or russian that that's a mistake i make all the time <laughs> um then why why are these phenomena not emerging there because i feel like it, it if it is an experimental thing you you try it out in your own air space you you don't want something like this going wrong and then uh ending up in the hands of the very enemy that you would use this against so yeah that i'm i i'm i think this is like of the contending explanations i think this is a very plausible one i don't think it's the right one personally but i think it's very plausible and if it ended up being this um, I wouldn't be that surprised. But Elena, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because it's the reasons you give both make it seem plausible and unlikely at the same time, because sure, maybe like I don't have any knowledge of Soviet technology. As I said, Soviet too, of Russian <laughs> <laughs> or Chinese technology. I don't, I don't know where they're at. I mean, so I think it's entirely possible, but at the same time, Again, like you said, Lee, I don't know why they would be testing it where other where Americans can can openly see it. I don't know. Does that make more sense though than testing it in their own countries where people might then see them and then they'd get their own kind of internal theories going and that might cause a bit of chaos internally? I don't know. So, so I feel like that explanation is good, but also it like it makes sense, but it also doesn't make sense for the same the reasons you explained too. I want to well, put uh, Nathan's yeah. feet to the fire because he always does this. He always oh, asks uh, 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 me and Elena what we think, and then moves on without having to commit to himself. So, what what is it, Nathan? Is it Chinese tech? Well, let's start with Russian tech or Soviet tech, as as we insist on calling it for some reason. Uh, the Russians spent 
about $60 billion on their military in 2020. And there is a history, especially when it comes to aircraft, of Russia sort of bringing the surprise uh, and surprising American intelligence. Uh, The MiG-15 jet fighter uh, first flew in 1947 was an extremely rude shock to American fighter pilots who assumed that their F-86 Sabres were like the hottest thing in the sky. And then this this MiG-15 jet fighter showed up, which was as good as anything the Americans had. Of course, the Russians are the first into space with Sputnik in 57. They send a person into space first with Yuri Gagarin in 61. Uh, in 64, we spent a lot of time talking about the SR-71 spy plane. But in 1964, the Russians come up with a MiG-25 capable of Mach 3. And again, showing up as an, a very rude surprise to American intelligence. Going back even to the 50s, the U.S. Air Force had a project called Silverbug, great name, which was looking into the possibility of building a flying saucer for military purposes. And when you read that report, it's interesting. It says, quote, A collection effort should be initiated to determine whether the Soviet bloc is or has been conducting research efforts on a similar project when this work began and the present state of the Soviet development. Again, in the 50s, the American government is extremely worried that the Soviets have got something weird up their sleeve in the sky, and maybe it's a flying saucer. But here's the thing. If you look at the current state of Russian technology, it's mostly like fourth-generation Cold War aircraft. Uh, Sukhoi Su-35s, the MiG-29, Sukhoi Su-25, Tupolev Tu-160s. They've got like a handful of fifth-generation MiG-57s, but they're not even fully operational. Listen yet. to Nathan showing like, off there. I'm in my I'm in my element right now. <laughs> so I don't think, based on the current state of the Russian Air Force, that they'd be able to pull out something like this, and especially considering the amount of money they're spending. Now, China, on the other hand, spent about two hundred and fifty billion dollars on the military in 2020, which is four times what the Russians spent. But the issue with China is that they're playing catch-up. Uh, their Air Force is mostly old Russian-built stuff or homegrown variants of Russian designs. And some of those are, like, super old. Like, the MiG-21 goes back to the 1950s. The, the Chinese do have the Chengdu J-20, with as a, which is a, a fifth-generation stealth aircraft. But most Chinese aircrafts are fourth- or third-generation planes, which means that they're, like, Vietnam War era or even Korean War era. So... To imagine that, I mean, China is an emerging superpower, and if something like this happened 10 years from now, I would just assume it was China pulling it off. But for the Chinese Air Force to have something like this in 2004 seems to me to be unlikely. I, I got nothing what there. What does that leave us with? Well, and it gets even trickier than that. Like, uh, we, of course, we are fortunate to to know a lot of people who are smarter than us. And one of them is a a quantum physicist. And so I I asked this quantum physicist for help. I said, you've seen these videos. You've heard the explanations. We have these UFOs which don't appear to have conventional propulsion systems. What else could they be using? And so uh, I'm going to quote from our, our dear friend, Professor Leo DeLeo. As far as I know, we're not close to creating an anti-grav mechanism. That is, a way to switch off gravity or make a repulsive gravitational field or create a way to block the effects of a gravitational field, the curvature of time-space, or fiddle with inertia, although I appreciate the interest a military would have in its potential. There has been a mathematical speculation in this field, though, to create the conditions of anti-gravity on paper, 
But this involved hypothesizing, imagining undiscovered negative mass or energy, or the speculative manipulation of space-time with something called a basically a warp drive. But so far, nothing with a practical side. Gravity is a strange animal as compared to the other three forces of nature, and I suspect that once we can link it with the other forces and even figure out how it works at the quantum level, that may give us more insight into how to possibly manipulate it or even figuring out the mysterious anti-gravity repulsion of dark energy as it continues to expand the universe. Maybe that tips us into a new paradigm. Still a lot of mystery here, but I don't think we're quite there yet. That seems reasonable. I mean, Leo's a reasonable guy. He's a very reasonable guy, and also somebody who I would trust on the questions like, you know, have we developed a quantum drive or not? I wanted, though, to, to Elena's question, like, where does that leave us? Because we already then jumped to solving the problem as such, but I think there's a couple of other hypotheses that we haven't explored. Like, for example, if it it doesn't have to be foreign tech, it could be domestic tech. And that, when I said the foreign tech is my second favorite explanation, my first one is domestic technology. That is to say, Americans or some branch of the American government has created something God knows what, that is now being tested over the oceans and people are encountering it. And the reason I I would, if if you put my feet to the fire and said, you got to choose something, you got to, you know, might not be able to explain what it is, but you got to tell me what you think is going on here. I think it's the American government testing out something that is not generally known within the larger public. And We've seen this before. Like Nathan was talking about um, the incredible airplanes that the Soviets had developed, but they weren't testing them in the United States and in their testing phases. And most of the UFO, the good UFO reports that we get from the fifties and sixties, excuse me, are Americans misidentifying American tech. So, and here I get to say some airplane words. Uh, the Oxcart uh, or the A-12, the SR-71, the U-2, and later uh, stealth fighters have all accounted for a huge amount of the quote-unquote really good sightings. Some of these sightings were by military, you know, it's like military pilots who are like, I've said this so often on this podcast, give it in brief again, you're testing a super new, high-flying, super-fast-flying airplane. According to what you know, it's the highest, fastest-flying airplane that exists. And significantly above you comes a flying black triangle that, you know, shoots over you and is going faster and higher than you are by a lot. What is going on? What do you think is going on? Some segment of the population is like, that's that's got to be aliens. I mean, I'm I'm in a I'm in the fastest flying airplane. What was happening though was that stuff was being created without that knowledge being generalized even to people who had top secret security clearance. If this is known as a need to know in the American government. If you don't need to know about something, even if you have clearance for it, you're not going to be told about it. So if you're in another department that's not directly associated with Area 51 and you're testing, let's say you're in the Air Force and you're testing a new airplane, you don't know. 
even as a test pilot, that the United States is developing even more incredible tech somewhere else. Sorry. Yeah, one, one of our listeners, I mean, what Lee's saying isn't just hypothetical here. One of our listeners, I'm not going to say his name. I'm just going to say his code name. His code name is Viper. So shout out to Viper if you're listening. Uh, this guy knows what he's talking about in this area. And he told us a story about a friend of his. Now, his friend was flying to Edwards Air Force Base in an F-100 Super Sabre jet fighter back in 1966. And the F-100 Super Sabre, it was like, it was a hot rod. It was fast. He was like breaking the, the, the sound barrier in that thing. It was an impressive fighter jet in 1966. But on that day, this guy sees something bizarre in the sky. It's got this weird, flat, black body, massive engines. It's crazy fast. It doesn't look like anything he's ever seen. And when he lands at Edwards, he's greeted by a couple like security guys with some paperwork for him. And they basically say, you have to sign your life away now that you will never, ever say what it was that you saw in the sky. And of course, this is where the, the men in black thing starts to come in. And obviously, uh, what that guy saw in his F-100 was, and in this case, it was an SR-71. So yeah, that has happened in the past. And to the point where the American Air Force started leaning into that UFO idea a little bit because it provided them some cover for some of that weird stuff they were flying around in. Oh, I was just going to say, I was literally just going to pose that question um, of whether or not people have been sort of sworn to secrecy in the past for seeing things that turns out to be some sort of technology. Um, so you've already covered that. And second point, I wanted to say, Lee, those were very good airplane words. <laughs> Thank you. I was practicing them. I, Even I, I was impressed. I wrote them down. I looked them up and wrote them down because I, I wanted to say airplane stuff too. But here's one more, just along this line, the story of Thomas Mantell, uh, the captain who uh, is actually killed chasing UFO. So, and again, it's one of these stories where when you don't have all the data that we have today, you're really left scratching your head in, I feel like, much the same way that we're scratching our heads today. And this is why I think that going back in the history of the UFO phenomenon is so helpful here, because I just feel like we've been here before. So we've covered this story on the podcast before, but very briefly, there is a uh, fighter pilot out of Kentucky in 1948 who is, I think he's already flying when the air traffic control or people at the tower, they notice something on radar that shouldn't be there. It's gigantic. It's huge. It's like... Um, I should have gotten the specs, but it's a number of football fields in width. It is completely metallic, windowless, and it is hovering in really high up in the sky. Too high, actually, it turns out, for a fighter to reach. This is seen not only on radar. It's seen by ground personnel. It's seen by civilians. It's seen by police officers. Um, it's being called in. It's the middle of the day. And there it is. There's just this thing that seems to be hovering. So uh, Thomas Mantel and two other uh, are scrambled in this direction. They try and find what it is. Two of the three, they, seeing how high it is, decide not to go further because of uh, fears about uh, running out of oxygen. Thomas Mantel, being a good patriot, is like, this is scary. And as Nathan and Elena were pointing out earlier, 
The fear is that this might be Soviet tech. Who knows if this isn't a, some, uh, you know, whatever with a bomb on it. You got to find this out. I mean, that's what your job is, right? So he tries to fly up to this object and he's radioing back these amazing descriptions, which honestly, I mean, what are you going to think? A giant silver encased object just floating, you know, beyond where F-51s can go. Now, I'm just going to, you know, give the ending away. Uh, what he, what we now know today is that he encountered what uh, was either Project Mogul or later Skyhook. It's a giant balloon sent up into the lower atmosphere in order to conduct radio sonic listening espionage uh, to see if the Soviet Union was detonating bombs uh, in the atmosphere. And I guess one of these balloons malfunctioned and came down a bit. But for me, this is this feels so much like where we are today. Like you're confronted with a piece of tech that you don't know, like there would have been people in the military who knew what happened to Mantel, but you can't tell anybody um, because it's a super secret project. And without knowing what we know today, what are you left with? I mean, really, I feel like the mo- one of the most reasonable explanations would have been, you know, something between I don't know and an alien spacecraft. That's why I feel like American tech for me is the is the best option so far because it's what made sense of the previous stuff that we couldn't understand until we got more data. Actually, I also must admit that this argument lends a little more credence to your criticism of the notion of a trained observer because, yes, these Navy pilots are trained observers in their own field, but as we've established and seen in other cases, the different arms of the government, the U.S. government, don't communicate with one another necessarily. And there are things that not everyone's clearance allows them to have knowledge of. So, sure, they, they know what they know, but they still don't know what they don't know because it's just not in their realm. I like that. They, they don't know what they don't know. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, I mentioned that the Russians spent like $60 billion on their military and China spent $250 billion on their military last year. Well, the Americans spent about $780 billion. So if anybody could pull something like this off at this point in history, uh, potentially the United States, there's also been some other weird things that have happened recently. There have been comments from the chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force that they're considering retiring the F-22 fighter jet from service earlier than expected. Now, that's odd because the F-22 is far and away the best fighter jet around. Nothing else can come close to it right now. So for them to be retiring it seems to suggest that maybe they've got something else in the works. Now, I know that they have a, a program called the NGAD program, Next Generation Air Dominance, And apparently it has already produced a flying prototype. And I have absolutely no idea what this thing looks like. And basically nobody has any idea what this thing looks like. And the other thing that that I think lends credence to this idea that that it's American tech is that the pilots reported that their commanders didn't seem too concerned about these UFO reports. When they came down and said, we just saw something really weird in the sky near our our carrier strike force, the commanders were like, okay. Now, maybe that's the stigma of reporting UFOs back then, or maybe that's the commanders knowing we've got some weird stuff that you guys don't know about. I, I will say, though, that the difference in performance and technology, we, I told that story about the guy in his F-100 seeing the SR-71. 
and being astounded by it. But the difference in performance and technology between an F-100 and an SR-71 in 1966 is nothing compared to the difference in performance between a Super Hornet and the Tic Tac in 2004. Like, this is a completely different thing. The SR-71, even though it was an insane plane, it was still recognizable as a plane. It still had wings. It still had an engine. If an engineer looked at it and saw it fly by, they would say, well, that's an insane plane, but it's an airplane. The other thing that's odd is that it's the American government that's demanding the release of this report. Although, of course, as we've said before, it's such a massive organization that most of it doesn't know what the rest of it's doing. Yeah, I mean, both President Clinton and President Obama, when they got into office, wanted to know if there were aliens in Area 51. So it is, it is something that people within the government might be curious about. And Obama recently came on TV to say that, uh, in his opinion, there are strange things in the sky. We don't know what they are. But here's the thing. All of this, uh, like up to this point, we've been treating the American military as if they're a uh, dealing in good faith and that they are truthful. So I've got another possibility here. What if the whole thing is a psyop? What if the whole thing is a kind of psychological warfare operation? Now we're going to get weird. I just for clarity for me, it, uh, how do I put this? Because I wonder there's the psyops element to it, but then there's also, again, from the historical record, there's just the conspiracy element, which is that UFOs work as a great cover to hide tech. So if you are, you know, if you are like testing something in the real world and people see it, and you can use UFOs as a smokescreen to get people to talk about UFOs and not talk about the SR-71 or the U-2 or what or the Project Skyhook, then so is that part of the psyops? Like because that's that would be my third favorite one would be this is just a smokescreen to divert people from getting interested in what's probably going on, which is American secret tech. Now, what I'm talking about now is the possibility that these UFOs are in themselves. They, uh, the, the PSYOPs isn't using UFOs to cover these strange craft. The PSYOPs is the strange craft. Uh, let's go back again into pop culture. One of the first novels dealing with the modern flying saucer phenomenon was a 1950 book titled, again, unoriginally, The Flying Saucer by Bernard Newman. Uh, in that book, uh, that novel, a secret group of international scientists are worried about the potential for nuclear war between the Soviets and the Americans. And so they stage, they fake an invasion of flying saucers from Mars in order to trick the nations of the Earth to unite against a common enemy. That's kind of adorable. But here's the thing. Uh, I was reading a heavily redacted CIA memo from uh, somebody named Walter Smith in 1952, and I'd like to quote it. This is talking about the flying saucer phenomenon. I am today transmitting to the National Security Council a proposal in which it is concluded that the problems connected with unidentified flying objects appear to have implications for psychological warfare, as well as for intelligence and operations. I suggest that we discuss at an early board meeting the possible offensive or defensive utilization of these phenomena for psychological warfare purposes. So there was two things that they're talking about here. One, is there a danger that the Soviets are using this UFO phenomenon as a kind of psychological warfare against the American people. And two, the CIA was clearly interested, could we use this UFO phenomenon as a psychological warfare tool against other groups of people or possibly against our own people? 
I don't know where I'm getting this from, but I have heard that there may, and you know, that <laughs> this chain of this 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 makes it probably quite implausible, but I have heard that there may be tech out there that you that can make people see things that don't exist. Um, so, so for example, the utilization of this that I had heard is that you can make people hear the voice of God, you know, um, and so you go running out onto the battlefield and then what appears to be God says, no, no, <laughs> turn around and go back home. Is this what we're talking about in terms of a psyops? Like that there was something out there that actually made these pilots see something? Like, I, I'm just curious more, I guess, about the nature of the psyops. Like, how, how what's the claim? Well, that's, that's the trick about psyops. It's always difficult to pin them down. And this is by far uh, the hypothesis that has the least evidence for it. But at the same time, you can't deny that there has been this psyops aspect of the UFO phenomenon. Of course, remember when we talked about uh, the tragedy of what happened to Paul Benowitz, when basically the American Air Force, using a special agent called Richard Doty, drove Benowitz mad with all of these tales of flying saucers and alien invasions. We know that in the 1970s, uh, there were intelligence American intelligence operations that were planting false stories amongst the UFO community. And those stories continued to circulate. Elena, uh, you and I went to that UFO convention, and some of the stories we heard from people were originally planted by American intelligence in the 1970s. These stories are sticky. Now, why in the world would you want to do that? And I, I haven't seen enough evidence or information to explain what they would be doing with that. But I have seen, including in some of the WikiLeaks drops, I've seen uh, a lot of files which seem to suggest that intelligence agencies of the United States and of England have looked at the possibility of using the UFO phenomenon as a kind of psychological warfare tool. <laughs> I think, I don't know, it doesn't strike me as that compelling, although I have to admit I don't have much reason for, for thinking that, except perhaps, again, it depends on the nature of the psyops. If, if, what, if what we're trying to do is create the impression that there actually are flying saucers, I think it's not very well done. If you're trying to make us think there's UFOs, uh, uh, give us some better footage. <laughs> like it's not good. It's it's there's it's too ambiguous. I mean, both for for like it makes me not believe it on either front. Like I I wouldn't believe it as a psyops, but also not as an actual event because I'm just like I don't know. Like the 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 data is just not good enough. Look, I was thinking about this in a different way. Like sometimes when we are confronted with questions like this, it's helpful to look at comparables. Has there ever been a time when there was a mythical something that people claimed existed, you know, but most of the mainstream opinion was like, no, no, that's bogus. And then later we found one. You know, I'm thinking of like the Kraken, right? Like the this sea monster that apparently... Uh, you know, seafarers would come back with these tales of these unbelievable sea monsters that were, you know, ab absolutely incredible in size and ferocity and you know, proportions like an eye the size of a, you know, I don't know, like a, a car tire or something. And 
eventually you find one, right? Like the 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 I think it was the Japanese that had sent down some deep sea camera and and caught one on film. You can get hard evidence when you look for stuff. And then when you when you're confronted with something like Loch Ness, it's like it's been going on for I don't know how many years and nobody's ever come up with more than some dumb grainy photograph, you know? And it's like, no, I so I feel like there's got to be some comparables here in history. Like, why can't we, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this because it really bugged me. Why can't we get better data for this? Now, maybe that's what's in the drop, but honestly, I doubt it. Like, I doubt that the data is just good enough where we can just say yay or nay. And I don't know. It isn't really answering the psyops thing, but it, it started me off from there because I was just annoyed that, the data wasn't good enough. And if it were a psyops, I feel like the data should be better. So now I'm going to ask you guys to make some predictions. If this, this uh, report comes out and if it does have better data in it, which of the three, I'm going to, I'm going to have four hypotheses. One, it's tech from China or Russia. Two, it's tech from the United States. Three, it's some kind of weird psyops intelligence operation. Four, it's something else. Elena, which of those four are you going to go with? I think I'm going to go with domestic technology. But what that means is maybe we don't find that out in the in the drop, right? Because it's not probably something that wants to be made known. Okay. Lee, what do you think? Which of those four hypotheses is the most likely for these UFOs? I agree with Elena that it's probably tech. I would go as far as to say it's American tech because it's showing up in America, not anywhere else, apparently, from what we know. Like Elena, I don't think that in the document drop we're going to get clarity on what it is. When we look back at these examples that we've discussed from the 50s and 60s, it wasn't until, like, a f- you know, a few years ago that we actually got all the pieces of information that we could put it together and tell a coherent story about it, like 50, 60 years later. So I, I don't think we're going to know what it is for ad- about that length of time. And there'll be, a, you know, another version, some future version of us who will be looking back on us with some kind of, you know, empathy and maybe even pity because we were stuck here not knowing what it is. But I was going to go even further and say what I don't think it is. I don't think it's aliens. Oh, you know, what's interesting is we haven't really mentioned aliens this entire time. Kind of like the American intelligence of the late 40s and 50s. Yeah. (laughs) We've done this entire thing without even considering the possibility of aliens. So Nathan, what do you think? Okay. Um, what, What Leo DeLeo said I found very compelling this idea that the the tech that that appears to be, if if the uh, eyewitness accounts are correct, if the sensor accounts are correct, if the radar accounts are correct, then this is a technology beyond anything that we're anywhere close to. And so, part of me is sort of is sorely tempted to be the one of the three of us who comes down and puts his money on something else. So that, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. Even though I think probably the most reasonable answer is secret American tech, especially with the drone technology and things like that that's coming out right now all the time. I'm going to go with hypothesis four. I think this is something weirder. 
Nathan has a terrible track record of being right a lot of the times, especially when I'm absolutely sure he's not. Well, um, he also so goes that- last. He also he always goes last. So we like give our our explanations, and then he drops the mic at the end. Yeah, it's kind of a setup, eh? Yeah, I think, I a- think we got to start. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I'm betting on. I'm betting on that somewhere in this big drop that we're going to get, we get more footage and we get more accounts and maybe we get some more satisfying photographs. So that's what, like, that's why I'm gambling on here. Because if that's the case, then we've got this episode out and everyone will remember, oh, Nathan was the one. Nathan was right. Whereas if I'm wrong, we'll all forget about it. Right. And yeah, exactly. Also, if I'm correct, we will also all forget about it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so hold on a second. Just if I can, just before we finish, you know, something else is very vague. And, and maybe it is actually the safest answer because it encompasses everything but Americans, uh, Russian and Chinese technology. So what would you what could be the something else? Well, see, that's where we have to confront the limitations of our knowledge. And that's, I think why it's so easy to make the jump to something like aliens. I think that we have to just admit the fact that there's just things that we don't know. 